0: The time is at hand. The Army
1: Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army.
0: When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order.
1: One of the many spirits said to haunt the area. Unknown animal attack.
0: We need a great reset. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen.
1: From wild and wonderful West Virginia, this is In Dark Places. My name is Junebug Fugit. Are you Salazar? finally solved the riddle who Salazar is it was one of my cousins it was a good surprise though I hadn't talked to him in like five years <laughs> goofball how crazy is that though he found me just by watching some random video on YouTube weird I still think that's a great t-shirt idea though there's gonna be some merch eventually and one of the shirts is gonna have a new Salazar Hey, I almost forgot to mention, with all the excitement about Salazar, on March 29th, I think I might have had a new ferry sighting. I was going to work. I just had got out of the car. I was pointing to the parking lot, and it was a nice blue sky day for a change. There was some white clouds around. And I saw something in the corner of my eye, white, kind of moving around. And just as I seen it, it went kind of under this white cloud so I was like well maybe I'm just imagining things cause it's blending in with the white from the cloud I was looking up and then I kept looking like, I don't know I saw something move so finally after I kept watching this little white ball flew into my vision it was just not very far over my head maybe like 20, 30 feet high. It was like two inches round. Kind of looked like a bubble. You could kind of see through it. And I was thinking, is there a kid out here blowing bubbles? And it was a windy day. Wind always blows now. It's weird. I don't know what they're doing to the weather now, but we have a lot of windy days now. So this thing kind of looked like a dandelion or something just blowing around in the wind. But I was on a concrete parking lot. There's nothing like that around. So I kept watching and I thought it was kind of fishy. There's no kids out blowing bubbles. So it flew by a tree and I <laughs> noticed that it was still just kind of off. It kind of flew around the tree, intentionally not hitting it. So it kind of went up on the other side of the tree then, flew up about three more feet higher, circled back around the tree, and then glided to a stop on one of the branches up at the top landed on that branch. Then I couldn't really see it anymore after that because it was kind of toward the other back side of the branch. So I kept looking there for a few more seconds just to see if it would kind of fly away again or something. But it was getting kind of late, I had to go on in to work at that time. But I think it was a ferry, never know. And now here's a look at the news. The story was sent in by our friend Paul. Thanks, Paul. Rare demon fireworms discovered in Japan bear striking resemblance to ancient demons. Scientists say. Thanks, scientists. Three new species of rare glow-in-the-dark worms have a striking resemblance to demons described in folklore. Have been discovered in Japan. The new found species named Polyceris yondon and Polycerus ikachi belong to a family of animals known as bristle worms, which are normally found in the shallow waters of Japanese rivers and streams. Researchers published their findings in March in the Journal of Royal Society Open Science. The creatures give off a blue and purple luminescent glow, so they appear like hazy willow wisps at night, meaning that they may have provided inspiration for old tales of Japanese demons or Yokei, the study author suggests in the paper. The names are inspired by Japanese folklore. For instance, Onbi, or Demon Fire, is a will-o'-wisp, yokai that takes the form of a small floating ball of light that appears in remote mountains and forests to lead unsuspecting travelers astray. And Ondan is an incarnation of human terror, made from the combined fear of groups of people who gathered to tell ghost stories by the light of blue paper lanterns. As the stories were told, the superstition goes, the lanterns slowly winked out and their dimming pale blue light revealed an apparition of a demonic woman in a white kimono with sharp, blackened teeth, claws for hands, and horns erupting from beneath her long, dark hair. I... Gucci. Meanwhile, is the only name that doesn't reference Japanese folklore. Instead, it honors the former director of the aquarium who helped discover the worm. So to our friends in Japan, be on the lookout for that demon worm. And now, here is the Nicolas Cage Meltdown of the Week.
0: In Dark Places Individuals. This is your friend, Mr. Haunted. And uh, my friend Junebug sent me a message this week. He said he wanted to talk about fairies. Not monsters, not ghosts, not vampires, but fairies. So what do I do? I look up fairies. So are fairies real? Fairies are tiny, often beautiful human-like creatures sometimes with wings, that appear in legends and folklore around the world. Fairies likely began as versions of pagan nature gods and goddesses, and thus they are often associated with the outdoors, especially forests, as well as magic in journeys. Depending on the region, fairies are said to live in woodland communities, underground kingdoms, or inhabit lakes, hills, or stone or grass circles, often along with centaurs, elves, ogres, gnomes, and other such animals. Fairies, that must be a nice neighborhood to live in. Fairies come in many races and tribes, and are also said to vary in size and shape. Though most are small, some change size and become man-size, or larger, if they choose. In centuries past, people were much less sophisticated about what was real and what wasn't. Much of the world was still unexplored and shrouded in mystery. Traveling shows brought amazing creatures from around the world to people who had never seen such wonders. Animals such as giraffes, bears, tigers, for example, appeared as attractions in carnivals and circuses during the 1800s for many having seen these animals for the first time dragons mermaids and fairies did not seem far-fetched so imagine before before cameras were invented if you were from canada suppose hundreds of years ago and somebody explained some 20-foot creature with a 10-foot neck that was yellow with brown spots on it that was goofy looking, I probably wouldn't believe him, but here comes Mr. Giraffe. In the modern era, fairies have been mostly relegated to children's magical fiction, hence the phrase fairy tales. In centuries past, however, many adults also believed in the existence of fairies. Early fairies were not cute pixies. They were lustful, nasty, and cruel creatures, as likely to kill you as lead you out of the forest. They were often benevolent, but could be capricious and vindictive. Travelers on long journeys, or even those beyond their home villages, would bring offerings to leave for the fairies. Typically, bannock, which are bread cakes, tobacco, or fruits. In uh, return, the fairy folk might provide good weather or safe passage. From wild beasts and highwaymen. On the other hand, those who failed to do so risked ruin. If you got on the bad side of a ferry, doom was sure to befall you sooner or later. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? Suppose you like you said, these highwaymen are it sounds scary, but you're going down on a little journey down the street, you come back all bloodied and bruised and beaten, and you have to tell people you got beat up by a fairy. Anyway, even mentioning fairies was enough to incur their wrath. For that reason, they were often referred to obliquely as the gentle people or the good folk. Fairies were often associated with changeling, changeling beliefs and were sometimes said to secretly swap sickly fairy babies for healthy human ones. In fact, belief in fairies was at the root of a famous murder in Ireland. In 1895, a woman named Bridget clearly was killed by her husband, who claimed that she was not really his wife, but instead a changeling brought to him by fairies. This is an actual reenactment of me, Walking through this little, down this little lane in Ireland in 1428, I was merely walking around, laughing and joking with my friend Seamus about fairies, and out came this little fella, and this is what happened next. Ah! Oh! Oh! <laughs> and then after that good beat they gave to me, they actually had the nerve to giggle. Well, that's a little something about uh, fairies. And uh, back to Junebug and more in dark places. <laughs>
1: make of the case of the Cottingley Fairies. All of us, when we were children, believed in fairies. Here, Joe Cooper, thanks Joe, tells the extraordinary story of two little girls who not only believed in fairies, but made friends with them and even captured them on film. And this book has pictures, and I'll put that in the YouTube version. In the week before the end of the First World War, 11-year-old Frances Griffiths sent a letter to a friend in South Africa, where she had lived most of her life. Dated November ninth, 1918. It ran. Dear Joanna, I hope you are quite well. I wrote a letter before, only I lost it, or it got mislaid. Do you play with Elsie and Nora Biddles? I am learning French, geometry, cookery, and algebra at school now. Dad came home from France the other week after being there ten months and we think the war will be over in a few days. We are going to get our flags to hang upstairs in our bedroom. I am sending two photos, both of me. One of me in a bathing costume in our backyard, Uncle Arthur took, while the other one is me with some fairies up the back. Elsie took that one rosebud is as fat as ever and i have made some new clothes how are teddy and dolly an ordinary and matter-of-fact letter from a schoolgirl to her friend one might say apart from the rather startling reference to fairies but as both frances and her cousin elsie wright pointed out many times in the following years they were not especially surprised by seeing fairies they seemed a natural part of the rural countryside around the beck at the bottom of the Long Garden in Cottingley near Bradsford, in West Yorkshire the photograph enclosed by Francis the famous one which has since been reproduced thousands of times around the world albeit in an improved and sharpened version showed a little girl staring firmly at a camera since fairies were frequently to be seen but she herself was photographed not so often. On the back of the snapshot was scrawled in untidy schoolgirl writing Elsie and I are very friendly with the Beck fairies. It is funny, I never used to see them in Africa. It must be too hot for them there. Elsie had borrowed her father's camera a midge quarter plate on Saturday afternoon in July 1917 in order to take Frances' photo and cheer her up for her cousin had fallen in the bag and been scolded for wetting her clothes. They were away for about a half an hour and Mr. Wright developed the plate later in the afternoon. He was surprised to see strange white shapes coming up, imagining them to first be birds and then sandwich papers left lying around in vain, Elsie, behind him in the dark room, said they were fairies. In August, it was Frances who had the camera, when she and Elsie scaled the sides of the beck and went up the old oaks, and there she took a photograph of Elsie with a gnome. The print was under exposure and unclear, as might be expected when taken by a young lady, rising ten years old. The plate was again developed by Elsie's father, Arthur, who suspected that the girls had been playing tricks and refused to lend his camera to them any more. Both Arthur and his wife, Polly, searched the girls' bedroom and waste paper basket for any scraps of pictures or cutouts, and also went down to the beck in search of evidence of fakery. They found nothing, and the girls stuck to their story that they had seen fairies and photographed them. Prints of the pictures were circulated among friends and neighbors, but then interest in the odd affair gradually petered out. The matter first became public in the summer of 1919 when Polly Wright went to a meeting at the Theosophistical Society in Bradford. She was interested in the occult, having had some experiences of astral projection and memories of past lives herself. The lecture that night was on fairy life and Polly mentioned a person sitting next to her that fairy prints had been taken by her daughter and niece. The result of this conversation was that two rough prints as they were later called came to the notice of the Theosophists in the Harrogate Conference in the autumn and thus to a lending Theosophics Edward Gardner by early 1920. Mr. Gardner was a precise particular man Even a look at his photograph conveys this precision, which is also suggested by the neat copies he kept of his letters. Gardner's immediate impulse after seeing the fairy pictures was to clarify the prints, and in a letter to a photographic expert, Fred Barlow, he describes the instructions he gave to his assistants. Then I told them to make new negatives from the positives of the originals, do the very best with them short of altering anything mechanically the result was they turned out two first-class negatives which are the same in every respect as the originals except they are sharp cut and clear and far finer for printing purposes it seems incredible to us today that he could be so naive not anticipating the inevitable questions from critics as to shutter speed Figured definition. The suspicious resemblance of the fairy's clothes and hairstyles to the latest fashions for Garner only wanted the clearest pictures. He had been studying fairy lore for years and had heard many accounts of fairy sightings so the possible reactions of skeptics never entered his head. By striking coincidence, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, had been commissioned by the Strand Magazine to write an article on fairies for their Christmas issue to be published at the end of November 1920. He was preparing this in June when he heard of the two fairy prints in circulation and eventually made contact with Gardner and borrowed copies. From the beginning, contrary to the impression the public later gained of him, Conan Doyle was on his guard. He showed the prints to Sir Oliver Lodge a pioneer physical researcher who thought them fakes, perhaps involving a troop of dancers masquerading as fairies. One fairy authority told him that the hairstyles of the sprites were too parisine for his liking. Lodge also passed him on to a clairvoyant for psychometric impressions. Gardner's photo printer, Mr. Snelling, who had prepared the second batch of prints from the originals, was described accurately. What seems rather mysterious to us today is that no one was over-anxious to examine the original photographs, but seemed content to analyze prints. Snelling, of whom it had been said, what Snelling doesn't know about fake photography isn't worth knowing, said in his first report to Gardner on the rough print, that he could detect movement in all the fairy figures. Kodak, by contrast, stated that an experienced photographer might have been involved, which suggests that the prints that they had been examining may have been sharpened ones. A possible explanation is that Conan Doyle and Gardner may have wished to avoid any mention of improving the originals at that stage. Perhaps they did not consider the matter important. What was vital to them was the propagation of theophysical and spiritual doctrines. As far as they were concerned, clear prints showing recognizable fairies and gnome would provide the long-sought firm evidence from dwellers at the border as Conan Doyle was later to term natural spirits. Conan Doyle dispatched his Watson in this real-life case Gardner to Cottingley in July Gardner reported that the whole Wright family seemed honest and totally respectable. Conan Doyle and Gardner decided that if further fairy photographs were taken, then the matter would be put firmly beyond question. Gardner journeyed north in August with cameras and 20 photographic plates to leave with Elsie and Francis, hoping to persuade them to take more photographs. Only in this way he felt... Could it be proved that the fairies were genuine? Meanwhile, the Strand article was completed, featuring the two sharpened prints. And Conan Doyle sailed to Australia, and a lecture tour to spread the gospel of spiritualism. He left his colleagues to face the public reactions to the fairy business. That issue of the Strand sold out within days of publication. At the end of November. Reaction was vigorous, especially from critics. The leading voice among them was that of Major Hall Edwards, a radium expert, he declared. On the evidence I have, I have no hesitation in saying that these photographs could be fake. I criticize the attitude of those who declared there is something supernatural in the circumstances attending to the taking of these pictures because, as a medical man, I believe that the inoculation of such absurd ideas into the minds of children will result in later life in manifestations and nervous disorder and mental disturbances. Newspaper comments were varied. On January 5, 1921, Truth declared, For the true explanation of these fairy photographs, what is wanted is not a knowledge of the occult phenomena, but a knowledge of children. On the other hand, the South Wales Argus of November twenty seventh, nineteen twenty, took a more whimsical and tolerant view. The day's thought underneath was a Welsh proverb: "Tis true as the fairy tales told in the books." City News on January twenty ninth said straightforwardly. It seems at this point we must either believe in the almost incredible mystery of the fairy or in the almost incredible wonders of fake photography. The Westminster Gazette broke the aliases used by Conan Doyle to protect Francis and Elsie, and a reporter went north. However, nothing sensational or even new was added to the story by his investigation. He found that Elsie borrowed her father's camera to take the first picture and that Francis had taken a picture of Elsie and a gnome. In fact, there was nothing he could add to the facts listed by Conan Doyle in his article "Fairies Photographed, an epic-making event. The reporter considered Polly and Arthur Wright to be honest enough folk and had returned a verdict of unexplained to his paper in London. The case might well have faded away with the coming spring of 1921, and not the unexpected happened. Elsie and Francis took three more fairy photographs.
0: Violent leprechaun attack reported in Seattle. Following the recent proliferation of zombie-related news stories, it appears America has now moved on to attacks by other fantastical creatures. KOMO TV reports that last Saturday morning Seattle police arrived at the scene of a bar fight that left one man covered in blood and screaming in pain, his head held in his hands. When officers asked the man who had attacked him, he responded it was a bunch of leprechauns. Typically, leprechauns are not seen outside of the weeks before and after St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. The fact that these leprechauns were spotted in June and so far away from their native Ireland suggests that perhaps they were rabid or otherwise deranged. The victim claims the leprechauns in question were angry at him for dancing with a woman at a bar. One of them was reportedly wearing a white tank top. A witness on the scene told cops that a group of men were responsible for the attack, which is exactly what the bleeding man said, so thank you, redundant witness. The man was taken to a local hospital and treated for injuries. The leprechauns have yet to be apprehended be vigilant all ye travelers of Seattle thank you
1: every time I hear any kind of stories about leprechauns I'm instantly transported back to 2011 in Mobile, Alabama and this little piece of YouTube treasure.
0: Well, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, crowds are coming by the dozens to get an up-close view at what some say is a piece of Irish folklore. Some people in the Crichton area of Mobile say a leprechaun
1: has taken up residence in their neighborhood. A leprechaun. NBC 15's Brian (laughs) Johnson has more.
0: Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community, many of you bringing binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looked like a leprechaun to me. I got to look up in the tree. Who else in the leprechaun say yeah? Yeah! Eyewitnesses say the leprechaun only comes out at night. If you shine a light in its direction, it suddenly disappears. This amateur sketch resembles what many of you say the leprechaun looks like. Others find it hard to believe and have come up with their own theories and explanations for the image. My theory is it's casting a shadow from the other limb.
1: Could be a crackhead that got hold to the wrong stuff and it told him to get up in a tree and play a leprechaun.
0: we don't get down to the bottom of this. You are still on there, guy. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, man. This guy, helping to direct traffic, says he's prepared for his encounter with the leprechaun. He's suited up from head to toe. This wars all spells right here. This is a special leprechaun flute, which has been passed down from thousands of years ago from my great great grandfather who was Irish. And I just came to help out. Others just came to get lucky in hopes a pot of gold may be buried under this tree. I'm going to run a backhoe and uproot that tree. I want to know, you know where the gold is. I want to go. Give me the gold. I want to go. This is Brian Johnson, NBC 15 News. People will do anything <laughs> for a pot of gold. I mean, anything. You
1: know what I like? I like the amateur sketch of the leprechaun. Yeah, it looks like somebody yeah. got a really good look at it and got that good drawing of it. Who
0: there. did that? I want to know who sketched that.
1: I don't know. Maybe Brian sketched it. That was a good story. In case you didn't know, Leprechauns are considered to be part of the fairy kingdom. I didn't know that. Let's check back in with our friends in Cottingley. In the school holiday of August 1920, Frances Griffiths was asked to come by train to Cottingley from Scarborough, where she had gone to live with her mother and father after the First World War. Aunt Polly had written to say that Edward Gardner would be traveling up from London with new cameras so that the cousins might have further opportunities of taking fairy photographs to add to the two they took in 1917. Frances was a month away from her 14th birthday and had won a scholarship to go to grammar school, being both industrious and intelligent. Elsie, by contrast, had thankfully left school at the age of 13. Edward Gardner came from London to Bradford by train and took the train out to Cottingley Bar, three miles away. He had brought with him two cameras and two dozen secretly marked photographic plates. He described the briefing of the girls thus in his book, *Fairies: A Book of Real Fairies, published in 1945. I too went off to Cottingley again, taking two cameras and plates from London, and met the family and explained to the girls The simple workings of the cameras, giving one to each to keep. The cameras were loaded and my final advice was that they need to go up to the Glen only on fine days as they had been accustomed to do before and entice the fairies as they called their way of attracting them and see what they could get. I suggested only the most obvious and easy precautions about lighting and distance for I knew it was essential they should feel free and unhampered and have no burden of responsibility if nothing came of it all I told them they were not to mind a bit one might imagine the scene in the parlor of the Wright household beautiful Polly listening intently gangly 19 year old Elsie with her auburn gold hair Gentle blue eyes and sharp Francis, her energies suppressed for the occasion. Pity any one with corns who is round when Francis gets excited, Polly had written wryly on one occasion. And solemn Edward Gardner, bearded and perhaps sporting a bow tie, as usual, eager to engender some sort of scientific atmosphere, but in his heart really not hoping for very much, in spite of the new cameras and carefully marked plates. So he returned to London, hoping for fine weather, at least. Alas, it rained for two weeks. They had little opportunity for adding anything to fairy history. And the first record of anything happening is in a letter to Gardner from Polly, which is truly astounding. In modesty, she wrote about the events of Thursday, August nineteenth, 1920 The morning was dull and misty so they could not take any photographs until after dinner when the mist had cleared away and it was sunny. I went to my sisters for tea and left them to it. When I got back they had only managed two with fairies. I was disappointed and about those of two days after. They went up again on Saturday afternoon and took several photos. But there was only one with anything on it, and it's a queer one. We can't make it out. Elsie put the plates in this time, and Arthur developed them the next day. And what must rank as one of the most charming postscripts ever? P.S. She did not take one flying after all. So the plates were returned to London. Elsie remembers the care with which they were packed in cotton and wool by her father. Who was puzzled about the whole affair. He never understood it until the end of his days. He died in 1926. And Conan Doyle went down in his estimation. Before the great man had showed an interest in fairies, Arthur held him in high regard. Afterwards, he found it hard to believe that so intelligent a man could be bamboozled by Elsie and her at the bottom of the class. But whereas Arthur could not bring himself to believe in fairies. Polly, as the tone of her letter suggests, supported her daughter and acknowledged the existence of nature spirits. Gardner was elated to receive the secretly marked plates which bore such intriguing fairy photographs. And telegrams were sent off to Conan Doyle, who was on his Australian lecture tour, currently in Melbourne. Conan Doyle wrote back, My heart was gladdened. When out here in far Australia, I had your note and the three wonderful pictures which are confirmatory of our published results. When our fairies are admitted, other psychic phenomena will find a more ready acceptance. We have had continued messages at séances for some time that a visible sign was coming through. But Conan Doyle and Edward Gardner were primarily interested in spreading their own ideas of the infinite to what they consider to be a far-from receptive public. Conan Doyle saw the Cottingley Fairies' incident as perhaps a gift from the gods, paving the way for more profound truths that may gradually become acceptable to a materialistic world. He used the last three photographs to illustrate a second article in the Strand Magazine in 1921. It described other accounts of alleged fairy sightings and served as the foundation for his later book entitled The Coming of the Fairies, published in 1922. Reactions to the new fairy photographs were, as before, varied. The most common criticism was that the fairies looked suspiciously like traditional fairies of nursery tales, that they had very fashionable hairstyles. It was also pointed out that the pictures were particularly sharp-defined as if some improvement had been made by an expert photographer. However, some public figures were sympathetic, sometimes embarrassingly so. Margaret McMillan, the educated and social reformer, waxed fulsome about the Cotton Glee incidents. How wonderful that these dear children such a wonderful gift has been besafed. Another eminent personality of the day, the novelist, Henry de Vere Stackpole decided to take the fairy photographs and the girls at face value. He accepted intuitively that both girls and pictures were genuine. In a letter to Gardner he said, Look at Alice's face. Look at Iris's face. There's an extraordinary thing called truth which has 10 million faces and forms. It is God's currency and the cleverest coiner of Forger can't imitate it. The aliases of Alice and Iris, first used by Conan Doyle to protect the anonymity of the girls, were deliberately preserved by Stackpole. The fifth and last fairy photograph is often believed to be the most striking. Nobody has ever been able to give a satisfactory explanation as to what seems to be happening in the picture. However, Conan Doyle, in his The Coming of the Fairies, advances a detailed, if somewhat over-elaborate, view of the pictured proceedings. Seated on the upper left-hand edge, with wings well displayed, in an undraped fairy, apparently considering whether it is time to get up, an early riser of more mature age is seen on the right, possessing abundant hair, and wonderful wings her slightly denser body can be glimpsed within her fairy dress this piece of whimsy from the creator of that unsentimental and coldly logical character in english fiction sherlock holmes provided his going soft school with formidable ammunition it is perhaps unfortunate that his ardent interest in spiritualism should coincide with his later years, especially in an age when anyone in his or her sixties was very much considered past their best. His championship of the Cottingley Fairies did little to dispel the growing image of him as a gullible old man. However, he was by no means the only believer in elemental spirits, as can be seen from the map of Cottingley, it is virtually on the outskirts of Populous, Bradford, and is not, as many imagine, an isolated village. There is a reservoir and an old water bridge over the beck, key markers for the fairy photographs. Traditionally, nature spirits inhabit wooded and watery places, and there are many stories of nature spirits being observed in such secluded spots. Also, the oak, ash, and thorn are traditionally associated with fairies, and these varieties of tree are found around the beck. In August 1921, the last expedition was made to Cottingley. This time, the clairvoyant Jeffrey Hudson was brought along to verify any fairy sightings. The feeling being that if anyone apart from the girls could see the fairies, Hudson could. Alas, the fairies refused to be photographed, although they were both seen by Hudson and by Elsie. But by then, both Elsie and Francis were tired of the whole fairy business. Many years later, Elsie looked at a photograph of herself and Francis taken with Hudson and said, Look at that, fed up with fairies. Both Elsie and Francis subsequently agreed that they had humored him to a ludicrous extent. This naive admission played right into the hands of their critics. Quite apart from playing Mr. Hudson alone, there were still allegations of faking the whole fairy business in the first place. And when more fairy photographs were not forthcoming, the Cotton Glee incident seemed all set to be relegated to the dusty gallery of famous fakes.
0: Yet the episode was not closed. Good afternoon or good evening in dark places individuals. We have a sponsor this week, and it's Lightbright. Lightbright is a toy that was originally marketed in 1967. It consists of a light box with small colored plastic pegs that fit into a panel and illuminate to create a lit picture by either using one of the included templates or creating a freeform image on a blank blank sheet of black paper lightbright was named one of the top 100 toys of all time by time magazine and was inducted to the national toy hall of fame in 2022 buckle my shoe so anyway let's hear a word from our sponsor mm. The toy that lets you create beautiful pictures with light.
1: Light,
0: light, Work with colorful pegs that glow with light, light bulb not included, make people, animals, things, and with refills, bugs, bunny, or bozo the clown. You can make lots of pretty pictures with Lightbright from Hasbro. Wow, what a treat! And thank you, Lightbright.
1: And now here's the exciting conclusion of the Codingalee story. The cutting fairy photographs made a journalistic sensation when they first appeared in an article in the Strand magazine toward the end of 1919. And ever since, they have been regarded as perhaps the most convincing evidence ever presented for the existence of fairies in the spirit world. But in late 1981 and mid-1982 respectively, Francis Way and Elsie Hill, who took the photographs, at this time, of course, old ladies admitted that the first four photographs were fakes. Speaking of the first photograph in particular, Francis has told on more than one occasion, My heart always sinks when I look at it, when I think of how it's gone all around the world. I don't see how people could believe they're real fairies. I could see the backs of them and the hat pins When the photo was being taken, how was the hoax set up? It started, as both ladies agree, with the best of intentions. Frances says she was able to perceive many forms of fairy life at the beck at the bottom of the garden of the rat household and was, understandably, continually drawn back to the stream. Occasionally, she fell in and wet her clothes, and was severely towed off. Elsie, much moved by the tears of her cousin, and sympathized with her when she blurted out to the adults that the reasons why she went so often to the bottom of the garden was because there were fairies to be seen there. Although Elsie liked Frances' keen perception of fairy life, she was sensitive to atmosphere and had a fine appreciation of the mysticism of nature, partly to take Francis's mind off her troubles and partly to play a prank on the grown-ups, who sneered at the idea that the fairies could be seen. They conspired to produce fairy figures that they could photograph convincingly. Francis had a copy of Princess Mary's Gift book, and the girls used a series of illustrations by Arthur Shepherdson as a model from which Elsie, who had received some art training from the college in nearby Bradford, constructed the fairy figures. They cut the figures out using sharp tailor scissors borrowed from Frances's mother, who worked as a tailorist in Bradford. They secured them to a bank of earth using hat pins. The girls took the famous photographs, dropped the cut-out figures into the swirling brook, and went home. How they gave the film to Mr. Wright and his surprise at seeing the fairy figures develop on the prints is history. The attitude of Elsie and Francis to the whole question of the fairy photographs is a typical Yorkshire one. To tell a story with a deadpan delivery and let those who will believe it do so. Indeed, Elsie has often said as much. I would rather we were thought of as solemn-faced comedians. About a month after the first photograph was taken, Elsie felt that she too would like to be photographed with a nature spirit of some kind. She made a gnome cutout, which was dully hat-pinned into the ground. Frances was a less expert photographer than Elsie, and according to her, the elongated hand in the picture is due to the camera slant. Believers in the authenticity of the photographs have, however, attributed it to psychic elongation. If the second picture is examined, it is easy to see the point of a pin in the gnome's midriff, but Conan Doyle, after examining the print, concluded that the point was an umbilicus, and that, therefore, birth in the fairy kingdom might be a similar process to human birth. Two photographs were printed and circulated among the girl's friends in the autumn of 1918, and the matter gradually languished, and neither girl admitting to the truth of the affair, rather preferring to keep people guessing. The following year, Polly Wright, Elsie's mother, went to some theosophical meetings, and so the prints came to be circulated at the Society's Conference in Harrogate in the summer of 1919. By early 1920, they were in the hands of Edward Gardner, photographic and slide specialist of the Theosical Society in London and president of the Blotsky Lodge, and he tried to persuade Polly to ask the girls to take more photographs. She, however, ignored his letters, and it was not until Doyle declared his own interest in the subject in June 1920 that matters began to develop in the public. In the summer of 1920, Gardner at last succeeded in persuading the girls to take a further series of photographs. These last three photographs were believed by both Gardner and Conan Doyle to constitute proof that it was possible to photograph fairies. Francis, on the other hand, has always marveled at the fact that anyone could believe them to be genuine. The flying fairy in the third photograph was pinned to the branch behind it. It was drawn freehand by Elsie, and it seems to Francis to be out of proportion. The fairy offering flowers to Elsie in the fourth photograph was attached to a branch in a similar way and sports a fashionable hairstyle that has attracted much comment. The two cousins are divided about the authenticity of the fifth picture. To the casual eye, it looks very much like the result of a simple overlapping of photographs. But Francis insists that It is a genuine photograph of fairies. It was a wet Saturday afternoon, and we were just mooching about with our cameras, and Elsie had nothing prepared. She said, I saw these fairies building up in the grasses, and just aimed the camera and took the photograph. Elsie, however, insisted that all the photographs were cutouts. It should be borne in mind that Francis often said it was as if A psychological blockage prevented her remembering events surrounding the photographs with any accuracy. Yet this discrepancy in the cousin's accounts of taking the photographs remains curious. The second set of photographs was held with joy by Gardner, and trapped by the first trick, Elsie and Francis had no choice but to remain silent. The consequences that would have resulted from any disclosures must have seemed terrifying to them. In 1921, Conan Doyle asked the clairvoyant Jeffrey Hudson to go to Cottingley to check out the girls' observations, essentially to see if he too could see the fairies. His lengthy descriptions of fairy life, endorsed by the overawed Elsie and Francis, saw nothing while Hudson was present, as they disclosed in a television interview in 1975, appeared as key pages in Doyle's The Coming of the Fairies in 1922. Hudson went on to become a distinguished writer on clairvoyance. It is impossible to rule out the possibility that his experience may actually have been genuine. Elsie was once asked point blank whether she could still endorse her statements to Hudson as reproduced in Conan Doyle's book. You have to make your own mind up about that, she said, again with a suspicion of that deadpan Yorkshire humor. What conclusions are there to be drawn? Four of the five pictures for certain are hoaxes. Elsie and Francis, however, insisted that the fairies were real. Francis saw them particularly often. The first time I ever saw anything was when a willow leaf started shaking violently, even though there was no wind. I saw a small man standing on a branch with a stem of the leaf in his hand which he seemed to be shaking at something. He was dressed all in green, and gradually she began to see more and more of the elves. And In the summer of 1918, Frances saw fairies as well as elves. They were real fairies. Some had wings and some not. They were once sitting in a patch of sunlight on a low bank. It all seemed so peaceful and friendly. Sometimes they came up only inches away, but I never wanted to join in their lives. Finally, she said, I became so used to them that unless they did something unusual, I just ignored them. Do fairies exist? Can they be photographed? What is certain about the Cottingley photographs cannot be regarded as proof of the existence of fairies. It is up to each of us to decide whether those people who report seeing fairies actually see them or whether they merely imagine them. Well, that's kind of a letdown. (laughs) Sorry about that. The whole episode was based on a fake. I guess I can kind of see how the story got kind of blown out of proportion, though. The kids were just kind of having fun, and then the adults kind of ran with the story. But that don't mean fairies are fake, though, because there are some pretty legitimate sightings of fairies. Jimmy has one more story. Check this out. This is creepy. (laughs)
0: A dairy farmer from Southern Ireland said he was assaulted in the worst way for two days by an extremely short bearded humanoid, which he said was a leprechaun. In an exclusive interview this morning, Angus Brennan from Watergrass Hill near Cork says he was milking his cows on Saturday when he was hit on the head from behind with a shovel or similar garden implement. The attack knocked him out, and when he woke up a few hours later, he had been tied up to a support beam inside his own barn. The 54-year-old farmer said he was repeatedly assaulted with relations. Over the next 40 hours by a waist-high midget with a red beard and a cocked hat. It wasn't human. It was short, fiendish, and spoken gibberish. According to Mr. Brennan, the leprechaun assaulted him more than 20 times over the weekend before leaving for some unknown reason. I think the unknown reason was because he was tired. Anyways... This guy saying he um, took advantage of me in, in every possible way over a period of two days. And then I was finally able to free myself from my bonds and call the police. Officers and paramedics arrived on the site within minutes and found Mr. Brennan lying in a pool of his own blood. He was transported to the Bon Secours Hospital in Cork. Where doctors observed obvious signs of violent sexual aggression, guard eye commissioner Norino O'Sullivan confirmed that the national police force had opened an investigation but insisted that investigators were at the moment looking for human suspects. It's rather improbable that this um pers- the uh assaulter turned out to be a leprechaun, a type of fairy in Irish folklore usually depicted as a little bearded man who partakes in mischief. Even so, a surprisingly high number of leprechaun sightings and even a few other attacks have reported over recent years across the United Kingdom and even in the United States. In April 2015, a Welsh man reported being assaulted and robbed by a pair of evil-looking leprechauns armed with knives. In 2012, in Seattle, a man who was found covered in blood outside a bar reported being assaulted by a bunch of leprechauns. In 2006, a leprechaun sighting in Mobile drew large crowds and even forced police intervention. In all cases, the leprechauns have yet to be apprehended. And you know what they say? Leprechaun assaults are very rare, but there's always that 1% chance. Very scary.
1: about all the show for this week thanks for listening thanks as always Mr. Haunted we'll see you again right here next week God bless you